Welcome to the Ocrest podcast channel. Ocrest School in Vienna, Virginia challenges girls in grades 6 to 12 to develop character, faith, and leadership potential to thrive in college and throughout their lives. In this podcast, English teacher and 8th grade class dean Ines Gruschow shares her insight on how the 8th grade curriculum at Ocrest uses literature and the imagination to inspire our students. She explores the characters that the students encounter in the classroom and discusses how imaginative fiction shapes our consciences. Mrs. Gruschow holds a Bachelor of Arts in Literature with a concentration in art history from the University of Dallas. Hi everyone, I am so happy to be here. I love this curriculum so much and it's really a joy to get to share it with you. I want to begin by saying that the topic of this talk the ability for literature to shape consciences is not a new idea. It has been extensively discussed by great writers and thinkers alike. Today, I'm merely piggybacking off their knowledge, dipping into the legacy of the great Western literary tradition of which we are all lucky inheritors. Before jumping into the curriculum, though, I just want to make sure we're all on the same page by addressing the telos, or the end of the conscience, and then how to form it. A well-formed conscience helps us relate to others and regulate ourselves through the use of reason. In other words, it helps us live virtuous lives. In his Nicomachean Ethics, Aristotle makes the case that the best life is the good life, one where virtue is exercised consistently. The man who achieves this is called the great-souled man, for he is able to determine the right course of action in any given situation because of his habituation towards virtue. Aristotle follows his ethics with another work, The Politics, where he famously claims that man is by nature a social animal. Armed with the conviction that the virtuous life is the best life, Aristotle understands that this benefits not just the individual, but the polis, the city-state, or society as a whole, because man is social and his actions have consequences. How, then, is one to become the great-souled man or the great-souled woman? How can we contribute to our communities in accordance with virtue? The natural law, a law written on our hearts, allows us to achieve this goal. In his treatise on law, a section in his great Summa Theologica regarding the nature of law, St. Thomas Aquinas affirms that the natural law is observed whenever humans engage in correct, practical reasoning about what is good and best for them overall in any given situation, and when they act in accord with that rational determination. This means that the natural law can help us relate to others and regulate ourselves. Now, while we're all born with the natural law, we are not born knowing how to exercise it. That becomes the role of the human conscience. With reason and a well-formed conscience, we have the capacity to act according to what is good and best overall in any given situation. As Christians, the natural law enables us to know God, who is goodness itself. Gathered with his apostles before his ascension, Jesus comforts them, saying, If you love me, you will keep my commandments. Because the commandments come from the Lord, who is good, the end of a truly well-formed conscience is not only to choose the good and thus follow the commandments, but to love the Lord and in doing so, love others well. Developing a well-formed conscience is a matter of continuous practice, and we have to learn how to use it. This was modeled for us by our parents, our siblings, teachers, and countless other role models. Other effective teachers are stories. I think it's to the credit of human nature 
that centuries ago, the clever storytellers realized that a myth, a legend, was a far better medium of teaching virtue than a list of rules. Of course, rules are important for practical reasons, but stories stick with us far more than a list of do's and don'ts. Flannery O'Connor, a fiction and prose writer of the 21st century said, a story is a way to say something that can't be said any other way. You tell a story because a statement would be inadequate. In saying this, O'Connor captures the idea that sometimes valuable lessons are best taught by engaging our imagination through storytelling. The lesson taught through the story can compel us to action. Thus, the conscience develops as it learns why and how to act. The greatest obstacle to learning anything, however captivating, is indifference. We must guard against this with all our might, for if we come, become desensitized to the power of storytelling and imagination, we lose one of the greatest ways to develop a well-formed conscience. In a poem lamenting the effect of the Industrial Revolution on the imagination and reflecting on the apathy with which humans regard the world, William Wordsworth exclaims, it moves us not. Great God, I'd rather be a pagan suckled on a creed outworn. We live in a world that is slowly robbing us of the wonder and the imagination that can transform the world into a magical place, a place where the ordinary is beautiful, worthy of wonder, worthy of praise. It is crucial that we surround and habituate ourselves to seek and find delight in the true, the good, and the beautiful found in nature, people, and the liberal arts. Encountering these things should elicit a call to action. We should want to be moved, aided by our imagination, into action to contemplate and do the good thing. The eighth grade curricular, curriculum offers these precious opportunities to develop the conscience through imaginative literature. It offers the reader the opportunity to learn from the mistakes and triumphs of fictional friends, mistakes and triumphs that move one to laughter, tears, and contemplation. In other words, the curriculum battles the challenge of indifference through the delight of the story. A colleague shared an article where the author, Leda Sundeth, makes the case that Jane Austen's novels, and really any novel of merit, are worth befriending. Sundeth argues that we should revisit novels as friends and teachers, for they are insightful in their way into the nature of reality and the human soul, as Dante or Homer's poems. And I would say that the same could be said about the literature read in eighth grade. To Kill a Mockingbird, The Chosen, A Midsummer's Night Dream, and Jane Eyre all offer opportunities to encounter what it means to be human. No small task, for these works of literature are true classics, true participants in the studies we call the humanities, disciplines which make man more human. I think the girls are able to get to these truths because they have enough life experience under their belts, enough experience to ask the right why questions, the questions which lead them to the heart of the problem and help them exercise their consciences as they determine or contemplate the answer. At the core of our being is the fundamental knowledge that we are children of God, worthy of being seen, known, and loved. Through the characters encountered in the novels and play, your daughters encounter this fundamental reality of their existence. See how this knowledge can powerfully affect actions and ultimately learn how to act in accordance with the dignity all human beings deserve. So 
I will be talking about these stories, and there are spoilers, so I apologize. But I promise that even though I will spoil some of, or I will spoil the books, uh, they're still worth reading. Um, in fact, my first year teaching, I hadn't read Jane Eyre before, and a colleague spoiled that story for me. But nevertheless, I, I really enjoyed the novel. I mean, I was still so engrossed in it, so that's me telling you, still read it, even if you hear the summary. Um, I also have the handouts for you guys. Some of you may have gotten them with essential questions that um, kind of guide, in a sense, our discussions, but they are by no means kind of a roadmap. Um, they, these questions come up organically in discussion. Um, all the girls, every girl is unique and different, so they approach these questions in different ways, um, and we discuss them in different ways, but I just think it's worth um, you all seeing what we're capable of discussing in class. And those questions are formed through the discussion and careful reading uh, your daughters do. Uh, all right, so To Kill a Mockingbird is the first book we read in the curriculum. And just a brief overview of the book, it's set in the 1930s in a fictional town called Maycomb, Alabama. And the characters, um, the story is told from the perspective of a six, seven-year-old little girl. And it basically tracks her maturity over the course of the book um, as she uh, experiences a, a court case where um, a black man is accused of raping a white man's daughter. And this obviously creates a lot of tension in the town because her father, the lawyer, decides to defend the black man and do so honorably um, when a lot of people in the town have said that it's a disgraceful thing to do. Um, so that's kind of the gist of the story for you all before I, I jump into this. All right, so in To Kill a Mockingbird, Scout and Jeb received the ultimate act of love from a man they misjudged. Boo Radley is willing to sacrifice his own life to protect theirs, but he teaches them a far greater lesson. Not everyone is called to the kind of heroism that asks one to risk their lives for another. However, you can love those around you by showing that you see them and know them, and this love can radically affect how a person views their reality. Boo Radley is the terrifying neighborhood legend of Maycomb. A recluse described as a shy man with quiet ways, he is the subject of neighborhood gossip and childish pranks. At the beginning of the book, Scout Finch, her brother Jem Finch, and their summertime neighbor Dill spend countless hours trying to get Boo Radley to come out. Simultaneously terrified and fascinated by his legendary status, they put on plays enacting the drama of the infamous scissor stabbing where Boo stabbed his father in the leg. They attempt to deliver notes with a fishing pole via the front window, and they even attempt to catch a glimpse of him by sneaking onto the porch one night. Yet there are many little events that defy their expectations of who Boo Radley really is. A blanket placed quietly on Scout's shoulders on a cold, scary winter night displays kindness. Little gifts and trinkets left in the knot of an oak tree that delight Jem and Scout once again demonstrate kindness, but also attentiveness and generosity. As the children grow older, their attentions move away from Boo Radley, as does the narrative, for it explores the heartbreak of the Tom Robinson case. In the case, Bob Ewell, a poor white man and the town drunk, accuses Tom Robinson, an honest, hard-working black man, of raping his daughter, Mayella. In an unpopular decision, Atticus Finch, the children's father, defends Tom Robinson, believing the black man's word against the white man's, a thing almost unheard of in the 1930s Deep South. The trial seems to be the culmination of the story. The jurors condemn Tom Robinson in spite of overwhelming evidence to the contrary, exposing the extreme prejudice of the town. 
Scout witnesses the miscarriage of justice and experiences the heartbreak of seeing the innocent injured. Atticus demonstrates what true courage is, fighting even though you know you are licked, through his passionate appeal to the jury. And yet the story doesn't end there. And actually, the girls are pretty shocked when we get through the trial scene, and they're like, wait, we still have a third of the book left? What? Um, and they ask this why question, why? What is, the, what is the point of this? And it's great because it gives them the energy to finish the book and be cheerful about it, um, but it also shows that they're recognizing like, why, they're asking this important why question that is so important um, in the formation of their consciences. So as they discover, the story ends with the heroic actions of the malevolent phantom, Boo Radley. By ending the story with Boo Radley's heroic actions, Harper Lee demonstrates through Scout that the true antidote to Maycomb's disease, to prejudice, is simply the advice Atticus shares with Scout on her disastrous first day of school. You can learn a simple trick. You'll get along better with all kinds of folks. You never really understand a person until you consider things from his point of view, until you climb into his skin and walk around in it. In one of the final scenes of the novel, Scout and Boo Radley walk together back to Boo's house, the scene of many childhood fancies and pranks but also the center of slanderous gossip. As Boo enters the house and leaves Scout alone on the porch, Scout turns around and sees the world through the lens of the Radley front porch. This panoramic moment offers a whole new perspective of the story, Boo's perspective. And I had planned to read this passage aloud for you all, but it's so beautiful and moving that I often can't get through it without crying. And if your daughters have had me as a student, as a teacher before, they'll know that I'm prone to to crying when I'm moved by something. Um, but this time I wasn't alone. I actually had some students come up to me and said that they also teared up at this final moment. Um, and I think that their reaction, it makes me realize that they get it. They get the beauty of the novel. They get this idea that their new perspectives are important. Seeing people for who they are is really important. Um, and they understand what, what Boo did. Um, he demonstrates that he knows his children. He leaves them trinkets and toys that delight them. Who sees the children. He can understand their trials and tribulations by their actions and expressions. And his sight is keen enough to perceive the heartbreak they experience when they encounter the injustice of prejudice. Boo's examples of seeing and knowing his children demonstrate that these seemingly simple acts are acts of love, and it informs the way he acts. Scout's experience of the reality of being seen and known by Boo and other characters in the book help inform her understanding of the world evidenced by the beautiful moment on the Radley porch. And there's this, uh, there's this quote from the Magnificat uh, years ago that reads, uh, the truest sacrifice is to recognize a presence. And what does it mean to recognize a presence? The eye, instead of affirming itself, affirms you. To affirm the other implies the forgetting of ourselves, which is the opposite of being attached to ourselves. We sacrifice to the other. The truest sacrifice is to recognize a presence, which means the truest sacrifice is to love. I just love that. And when I read it, it reminded me of, of what Boo does. And I don't think the girls necessarily reach this depth, but their reactions to the end of the novel affirm that they are touched, just as Scout is, by Boo's love. Um, so the next book that we read is The Chosen. And for those of you who haven't read it, The Chosen uh, is a book about two Jewish boys growing up in Brooklyn during World War II, final years of World War II. And one, both of them are practicing Jews. One of them is a Hasidic Jew, the other is an Orthodox Jew. And it is the story about how they become friends and then also their relationship with their parents. 
beautiful, beautiful novel. Uh, so, recognizing a presence greatly affects our actions, big and small, and it allows us to care for and love others. Likewise, misperceptions can also affect our actions and often impede us from seeing others as they truly are. Parents quickly learn the importance of seeing and knowing their children. A newborn cry, a pterodactyl-like shriek to some, can be quickly recognized by the parent as a plea for food, sleep, or a change of diaper. The simple appearance of their child can indicate happiness, sorrow, or frustration to a keen-eyed parent. All of these perceptions enable parents to love their children. Imagine the consequences if parents never learn to interpret the cries of their children. They might easily become resentful or worse, indifferent to them. The Chosen explores the friendship between two very different Jewish boys, Reuben and Danny, and the power of perception and the importance of perspective. In the first sentence of the book, Reuben reflects that for the first 15 years of our lives, Danny and I lived within five blocks of each other, and neither of us knew of the other's existence. He then turns his attention to describing their neighborhood, emphasizing the possessive, tight-knit community of the Hasidic Jews, which is in large part the reason they've never met, at least until they're 15, for Jan Danny is a Hasidic Jew. Apart from their appearance, the side curls, the somber black clothes, and the prayer shawl, Reuben notices ideological differences that set the Hasidic Jews apart from other Jews. During a baseball game against Danny's Hasidic team, Reuben recalls that his father had no love for the Hasidic community and the rabbinic overlords, and had told him of Rabbi Isaac Saunders and the zealousness with which he ruled his people and settled questions of Jewish law. And just as Reuben's perceptions are affected by his father's comments, the girl's perceptions are also affected by Reuben's. Um, less than complimentary attitude towards the Hasidic team. And of course, this gets blown up when Danny tells Reuben that his team is going to kill you apocorsum this afternoon. Now when he says this, the girls don't know what an apocorsum is, but they're like, poof, you don't say that in a game. It's pretty, that escalates things. Um, and Reuben later on explains that an apocorsum is a Jew educated in Judaism who denies basic tenets of his faith, like the existence of God, the revelation, the resurrection of the dead, and to people like the Hasidic Jews and like Reb Saunders, it also meant any Jew that, who might be reading, say, Darwin, who was not wearing side curls and fringes outside his trousers. I was an Apocorosidiani despite my belief in God and Torah because I did not have side curls and was attending a parochial school where too many English subjects were offered and when, where, Jew, where Jewish subjects were taught Hebrew instead of Yiddish. So to Reuben, this recreational baseball game which starts out as a fun, a fun challenge, um, it becomes a holy war, a conflict between the Hasidic team's uh, understanding of their righteousness and Reuben's team's sinfulness. The game escalates in intensity, intensity culminating with Reuben pitching to Danny and Danny hitting the ball right in Reuben's face, smashing his glasses and sending Reuben to the hospital with a dangerous eye injury. At this point, the girls begin to wonder how on earth these boys will ever become friends. In fact, yesterday I had a student rush up to me, Mrs. Grushow, they hate each other. How on earth are they gonna become friends? Don't, just, just read, stay with me. Um, she's like, but he said he wanted to kill Reuben. Like, I know, let's read. Um, so as Reuben experiences the fear and danger of losing his sight, he also experiences the effects of misperception, not seeing things properly, through his judgment of Danny's character. Reuben incorrectly believes as do the girls, that Danny must be just like his father, fanatic, self-righteous, and curious. 
And in fact, he rejects Danny's apology when he comes to visit him at the hospital. And the girls typically wholeheartedly approve of this. Uh, Reuben, blinded by his misperception, refuses to believe in Danny's sincerity. And although Reuben's skepticism has some foundation, his father ends up rebuking him for his refusal to even listen to Danny's apology. Things are always what they seem to be, Reuben. Since when? You did a foolish thing. If a person comes to apologize for having hurt you, you must listen and forgive him. Reuben fails to recognize that Danny needs forgiveness. He misperceives Danny's intentions, but luckily for Reuben, his father does not. When Danny returns to the hospital intent on apologizing again, Reuben accepts. What follows shatters all of Reuben's expectations of Danny. I looked at him and suddenly I had the feeling that everything around me was out of focus. There was Danny Saunders, sitting on my bed in Hasidic styled clothes. He was dressed like a Hasid, but didn't sound like one. Also, yesterday I'd have hated him, and now we were calling each other by our first names. When Reuben is able to see Danny for who he really is, he is able to accept Danny as a friend. His own discovery confuses him, for redirecting misperceptions can be disorienting. And even in class, it takes some time to go over this reconciliation scene with the girls to help them get on board with what's going on. But as a result of this redirection, Reuben gains a steadfast friend. Had Reuben remained stubborn and refused to hear Danny out, he would never have been able to take the actions which ultimately lead to a beautiful friendship. And at this point, I oftentimes remind the girls that first impressions can be deceiving. And so give that girl a second chance. Revisit that friendship. You might surprise yourself, but you won't know until you try. Um, so then the next book is Jane Eyre. Uh, it's that really, really fat, thick book that the girls are kind of scared of reading but it's, it's a fantastic book. And it kind of traces, once again, the growth of the character Jane Eyre. Um, the beginning of her life is quite tragic. She is orphaned and left with her cruel relatives and just has a pretty miserable, bleak upbringing. Uh, and in spite of that, she is able to kind of rise above her circumstances and educate herself. And through this education, she's able to leave this dreary school where she's lived most of her life in and become a governess at a nice estate. And while she's a governess, she falls in love with her employer, only to find out that he is married and has a lunatic wife living in the attic. And that, that creates a lot of the drama of the story. Uh, but it has a beautiful ending, so I encourage you all to read it. So encountering what it is to be seen, known, and loved by the father and like the father shapes Scout's reality, and Reuben experiences the powerful effect of this on his, in his own life. In the novel Jane Eyre, the protagonist Jane heroically shows how this identity, being a child of God, bestows courage and fortitude to act in accordance with the dignity all human beings deserve. Orphaned at a young age, cruelty and neglect characterize most of Jane's early childhood. And Charlotte Bronte doesn't shy away from the description of Jane's abuse at the hands of her relatives. And the girls are really moved with pity and sympathy at Jane's plight. Uh, and also righteous anger towards her cruel relatives. <coughs> when her aunt sends her away to Lowood School, a charity institution for poor and orphan children, she finally makes her first friend at the age of 10. Helen Burns, as her last name intimates, has a lasting effect on Jane despite their short friendship. Used to cruelty and neglect, Jane is shocked when Helen disagrees with her assertion that I must dislike those who, whatever I do to please them, persist in disliking me. I must resist those who punish me unjustly. 
It is as natural as that I should love those who show me affection or submit to punishment when I feel it's deserved. Helen patiently explains that only heathen and savage tribes hold that doctrine. And as Christians, we are called to something higher, to love our enemies, bless them that curse you, do good to them that hate you, and despitefully use you. This doctrine proves hard for little Jane, for she deeply craves the love and approbation that have been absent for almost all her life. Once again, Helen encourages Jane, you think too much of the love of human beings. You are too impulsive, too vehement. The sovereign hand that created your frame and put life into it has provided you with other resources than your feeble self, or than creatures feeble as you. Helen directs Jane's attention to the ultimate affirmation, the love of God. Helen dies soon after Jane's arrival to Lowood, but Jane remembers her long after, and the effects of Jane's, Helen's patient love and teaching become evident in Jane's later actions. Jane leaves Lowood, an accomplished young lady, when she is 18 and becomes a governess at Thornfield Hall. Despite obstacles of rank, circumstance, and age, Jane falls in love with her employer, the eccentric, mysterious Mr. Rochester, who likewise falls in love with Jane. And this always puzzles the girl, because he's quite older than Jane, like they cannot fathom that he could be more than 10 years older than her. So that always sparks a very interesting conversation about, okay, what is love? Um, who, who should we love? And then also kind of redirecting their idea of what the ideal man looks like. Uh, always a great conversation. Rochester admires Jane for her simplicity of manner and her lack of flattery. He feels her influence on him, remarking that, I knew you would do me good in some way at some time. I saw it in your eyes when I first beheld you. He sees something in Jane's plainness that no one else sees, a goodness, a freedom of spirit. Likewise, Jane sees in Rochester the potential for good. Despite his admission of a dishonorable past, Jane reminds Rochester that true repentance can cure even the most sullied past. She desires the good for Rochester and anticipates his needs to make him happy rather than to flatter his pride. Rochester proposes to Jane and Jane accepts. Yet on their very marriage altar, Jane discovers a disturbing secret. Rochester is married and his wife is a lunatic who resides locked up for everyone's safety in the attic of Thornfield Hall. Distraught, Jane attempts to discern her next course of action. Should she remain with Rochester and become his mistress, or should she depart? And this decision also sparks a very lively discussion because the students truly feel sympathy for Jane. I mean, she's had such a hard life, and here is a man who loved her, and she even says, he loved me so well, and he does this to her. And they know, like, okay, yes, this would be a bad thing if you stayed with him. And they're torn by that. They're torn by this desire to say, Jane, just stay and be happy, or, and the realization of, no, you should go on and do the hard thing. Um, and Jane reflects, not a human being that ever lived could wish to be loved better than I was loved. And him who thus loved me, I absolutely worship. And I must renounce love and idol. One drear word comprised my intolerable duty, depart. Despite Rochester's desperate pleas, Jane stoutly refuses. I care for myself. The more solitary, the more friendless, the more unsustained I am, the more I will respect myself. I will keep the law given by God, sanctioned by man. I will hold to the principles received by me when I was sane and not mad as I am now. 
Laws and principles are not for the times when there is no temptation. They are for such moments as this, when body and soul rise in mutiny against their rigor. Stringent they are, and violet they shall be. If at my individual convenience I might break them, what would be their worth? In her rejection of Rochester, not only does Jane demonstrate true sacrificial love, willing the best for the other, but she also reveals a deep conviction of her own dignity and worth. This conviction in the law of God enables her to remain firm in her resolve to leave in spite of the despair and heartbreak. Moreover, by leaving Rochester, Jane protects, protects his dignity and worth. Knowing that she will tempt Rochester to sin, she leaves. This heroic action changes the course of both Rochester and Jane's lives and sends them on a path of redemption and ultimately reunion. So then the play, A Midsummer's Night Dream. It is a play we often act it out in class and read it out loud. And it is a comedy about uh, these, four, um, these four young Athenian youths who are all kind of in a love triangle square. Um, there is a daughter who wants to marry this guy. Her dad says, no, you have to marry the other guy. But she hates the other guy. So that creates a conflict. And then her best friend is pretty sad because the guy who wants to marry her best friend is the guy she's in love with. So if this sounds confusing, it's because it is. And it's purposely confusing. They're like trying to figure it out. Um, and to make it even more confusing, one of the couple runs away because they want to elope and defy the dad's dictum. And they go into the forest where it's all dark and no one knows where they are. And there's also fairies in this forest because it's magical. And the fairies put love potion on the, on the lovers and they get mixed up about who they love and they're just having a great time and it's very confusing and it's all a comedy and then it ends before you know it and there's a triple wedding. And the girl's like, okay, so what's going on? So once we get past the language, um, it's actually a very entertaining, fun play that we read towards the end of the year. Um, so, when people treat others in ways that oppose their dignity, the effects are tragic. This is clearly seen in the prejudice of Macomb County and the disastrous consequences of Rochester's secret, and is averted, thankfully, at the outset of The Chosen. However, A Midsummer's Night Dream, a comedy by William Shakespeare, makes sport of human beings. The name of the play hints at the hazy, crazy, dreamlike nature of the play, and the major setting of the dark wooded forest contributes to the confusion. In it, fathers force daughters to marry unworthy men. Friends turn on friends, betraying their trust and scorning their love. Wise man made fun of the ignorance of the poor. The fairies, powerful creatures with command of nature and control over human affairs, play and toy with the affections of human and squabble amongst each other over petty affairs. It may seem that for the sake of comedy, Shakespeare slackens the standards of human dignity and love. After all, the scene where Robin Goodfellow transforms the head of Nick Bottom the Weaver into the head of the donkey is quite ludicrous, a hilarity compounded when Titania, the bewitched queen of the fairies, falls in love with him. In the play, love is fickle, ever-changing, never-binding emotion, manipulated by the fairies through the use of a love potion. Humans fall in and out of love with each other, and even the fairies, however powerful, are not immune to the intoxicating effects of a love potion. And the result is quite comical. 
And once the girls get past the challenge of Shakespeare's language, they really do enjoy the humor and they also love acting it out. So I'm not trying to suggest that Shakespeare's play be banned from the curriculum for lack of respect towards human dignity. In fact, Shakespeare purposely exaggerates the misconduct of love and lack of respect because it exposes the deep truth that humans need and deserve ordered love grounded in reason and respect. Furthermore, it's in this play that the girls really reveal a sense for the importance of being seen, known, and loved. And this development shows itself through their indignation at the end of the play rather than an articulated assertion of the truth. During the play, the four Athenians, Helena, Demetrius, Hermia, and Lysander, are victims of the fairy's sport. Demetrius and Lysander are placed under a love potion. Demetrius falls in love with Helena, whom he hated, and Lysander also falls in love with Helena, even though he plans to marry Hermia. The chaos that ensues from this creates great merriment for the fairies, but at the end of the night, the Athenians wake in the daylight to hazy memories of the night before. In a turn of events, Demetrius remains in love with Helena, declaring, I watch not by what power, but by some power it is. My love to Hermia melted as the snow. The object and pleasure of mine eye is only Helena. Yet he also questions the other Athenians later on. Are you sure that we are awake? It seems to me that yet we sleep. We dream. There is a purposeful ambiguity in Demetrius's language. Is he free from the love potion, or is he still bound by the spell? In true Shakespearean fashion, the comedy of a Midsummer's Night Dream ends in a triple wedding. The girls are typically aghast that Demetrius might have no idea what he's doing. How can he really be in love with Helena if he isn't free to choose it? They spot the inconsistency because stories have formed their consciences to balk when a character isn't treated properly and to rejoice when they are. They learn to ask the essential questions, why? And through it, they exercise and develop their consciences. Stories are not meant to be didactic. They are intended to impress a particular idea, feeling, question, emotion on our souls. They truly have the power to become a part of us. Now, I don't mean that the ghost of Jane Eyre will appear every time you or your child make a hard decision, although that would be pretty cool. But what I mean is that her character, however fictional, is an example of growth and virtue. And through reading her story, we participate in a formative experience. Her story is what Vigan Gorian calls a compelling vision of the goodness of goodness itself, and is presented in a way that is attractive and stirs the imagination. For this reason, we must be attentive to stories and search for good stories, high and low. What we read, good and bad, can stay with us. If we protect our imaginations and nurture them with good stories that make us want to live our lives in a better way, we participate in the experience of the girls and strengthen our consciences through the examples of the good. I hope you enjoyed this podcast from Oakcrest School. To subscribe to our podcast channel, visit oakcrest.org.